Good morning. Well, we have this passage here jumping back into our study in Exodus, which we really did last week, but this is jumping back into the tabernacle itself. Last week, we talked about the priests. Now we're coming back to the actual structure of the tabernacle. Now, this piece here that we're talking about is the altar of incense, and it's the last piece that God gives information to Moses about building that is inside the tabernacle. The only other one we have left is the labor, which is one that's on the outside of the tabernacle. And it's very interesting that all the things on the inside have already been named, and yet God's gone to the outside and named some things and talked about the priests, and now he comes back inside again. It almost seems like this would have fit much better if um, God would have just named it with the table of showbread and the golden lampstand to go ahead and throw the altar of incense in there. And it's actually led a lot of scholars to believe that this was added later. Um, but that doesn't make a lot of sense either because if it was added later, it even makes more sense that they would have added it in that spot and not in a later time. So there seems to be something intentional in that, and that's one thing we're going to pay attention to. And I want to um, start with just kind of talking about those first few verses. I'm not going to read them again because Lawrence just read them, but it tells us those first five verses tell us about how it's made, the construction of it. Now, one thing we're going to see in conjunction with how it was built is probably what it represented. And what it represented was prayer. Um, it was a place that represented the sweet aroma that went up to the Lord. Now, the smoke that comes from this would have filled, the fragrance would have filled the holy place, which remember is the first part of the tabernacle as you walk in. Um, but it also represents something that is going up to the Lord. The best thing you can uh, really relate to that is, is our prayers. Now, the scripture doesn't say here or anywhere else that that's what the altar of incense was, but we're going to see the connection with some other passages that make it more than even a strong inference that that's exactly what it represents. First of all, uh, Moses writes down, con uh, he records for us God telling him exactly how to construct this. The altar was made of wood. It was covered with gold. It had four horns on each corner. There was a bowl that was on top of the altar. That bowl was the thing that held the incense inside of that. Now, there was a very specific recipe of incense that was made for this altar that was not to be used in any other place in any other fashion. This was holy to the Lord. So think about this. This smell, whatever it was, and even when we have the names of, of this recipe, which we find in the book of Leviticus, um, we don't even know what some of these are today. So there's no way for even us to remake this, at least not intentionally, because we don't even know what some of them represent because we don't, we don't have them today or they've been renamed over time and we just don't know what they related to. Um, but remember that this right here, this one smell would have been a smell that was unique to the holy place to that curtain that was hanging there, that big large veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. There's a lot of strength connected with that smell right there. The altar of incense 
was a great place of importance. It was a place where the priest would come and offer, we believe, prayers to God. I'm going to show you why we believe that in just a moment. And I think they would probably offer them on their own behalf. I think they probably offered them on behalf of the Israelites, one of the ones that maybe they were out in the courtyard speaking with as they were offering a sacrifice. And maybe he knew the need of what was going on in their life and maybe why they were there that day. And as he walks in to fulfill his duties there in the holy place and he walks before this altar, he represents what he heard out there in the courtyard. He represents a conversation that he had with one of the worshipers as he goes before the Lord on his behalf, lifting up these requests. Ultimately, the altar was a place of worship. We still think of that. We think of when uh, Abraham built an altar to the Lord and was going to sacrifice Isaac on it. That was a place of worship. Abraham even said as much. He said to the people who were traveling with him, me and the boy are going to go a little further and worship. And the only thing that he did was offer his son as a sacrifice to God. He built this little altar. So this idea of altar and this idea of worship are directly connected. That's a big key piece in this as well. Now, the smell of the incense would fill the air. And not only would it fill the air, it would create this, this sense of reverence, this sense of holiness. Why do I say that? Well, because, like we were saying earlier, this is a unique sense. In other words, it's the smell, this aroma was unique to the holy place. So whenever the priest would smell this, it was directly associated with this idea of worship, with this idea of service to God, with this idea of an altar, and this idea of sacrifice. Today, we, we may not have an altar of incense, but we still use smells to create a sense of reverence and holiness, don't we? I mean, there are so many different ways, whether it's candles that have been burned or whether it is incense that we offer. I mean, there are many ways that we can still connect a smell with an experience of some sort. That's the power of smell. Smells have the ability to recall some of the most evocative and powerful memories that we have. Have you ever been like that? Have you ever been somewhere and you smelled something and you immediately thought, oh, I've smelled that before? And maybe your mind goes back to grandma's cookies or it goes back to a Thanksgiving that you had a long time ago. Or it goes back to some experience that you had. These smells can take us back to a specific time, a specific place. These smells can conjure up powerful emotions in us. For many of us, certain smells can be linked to those specific memories, those specific experiences, like the scent of freshly baked cookies might remind us of our childhood, while the smell of a bonfire might take us back to some camping experience or back at youth camp whenever we were gathered around. And maybe we even had this very intense moment of understanding something, maybe something even about God. Maybe you're at youth camp and the youth pastor was talking about forgiveness and salvation. And for the first time, it really made sense. And as those things began to connect in your head, there was this smell coming from the bonfire. And all of a sudden, those two things have been, been connected. These memories and these experiences, they can be positive, they can be negative, but they all have this power to evoke strong emotions. This is why smell is such an important part of the human experience. It can transport us into another time and another place 
to help us better understand our own memories and our own emotions. When I think about the power of smell, I go back to our study of John. And I think about the power of how John connects that charcoal fire. Do you remember that? Um, When they were around, a charcoal fire was where Peter denied that he knew Jesus three times. And then he heard the rooster crow. And then he wept bitterly. And then after all the events of that day that followed the crucifixion, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection, Peter was still thinking, you know, that he was less than, that he had the opportunity, but he blew it because he just threw it all away. And, and, And then it was Jesus who was on the shoreline while they were out fishing. And he asked them, had they caught any? thing and they said no and that's where Jesus said well throw it on the other side and then all of a sudden they were like this is Jesus that's just Jesus and and Peter jumps out of the boat and he swims because he's like I want to see him but when he comes up he just bows himself before the Lord because he realizes how of a terrible person that he is and then John gives us that very powerful emotion and connection with that sensory experience he says that Jesus was sitting there around a charcoal fire. So as Peter comes up to this charcoal fire and he smells that smell, don't you know that smell was ingrained in his mind? When when he, for the third time, denied that he knew Jesus, when he heard the rooster crow, the smell of that charcoal fire was in his, you know, he probably never wanted to see a charcoal fire again the rest of his life. He probably hated that smell. But Jesus took that negative experience and turned it into a positive one because around that charcoal fire is where Jesus says, do you love me? I I, I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Feed my sheep. Three times he reinstates Peter around a charcoal fire. What a beautiful picture of how sensory experiences can evoke these strong emotions in us. The altar of incense, again, like I said earlier, is the last piece of furniture that God gives instructions to Moses about that goes inside the tabernacle. It may seem kind of odd that it's mentioned here, like I said earlier, Um, that it's not mentioned back there with the other things that we find inside the holy place. But I want to tell you that I do believe that there is intentionality behind why God gave these instructions in the way that he did. I think that, and again, I don't know for sure that this is Moses' intention or God's intention through Moses, but I think the placement of the altar of incense here seems to be perfectly situated. Why? Because it comes after the installment of the priest and the high priest. Without a priest or a high priest, you have no one coming in to offer prayers. Things are there and they kind of run, but the altar of incense represents something that's being offered up. And if we do connect it to prayers, then there has to be someone there offering prayers. Anyone can come in and tend a lamp and make sure that there's oil in the lamp. Anyone can bring in some new bread and lay it there on the table of showbread. But if this represents this idea of prayers being offered to God, if this represents some kind of picture of the priest being this intermediary between God and man, then you can't really have this until you have someone who can fulfill that role. And that's what we looked at last week. God initiates the role of the priest, and now he follows it with this idea of incense burning in the place that they're going to work and worship and serve the Lord. The priests were the mediators between God and man. The main discipline of that mediation that the priests served between God and man 
was prayer. That was the most powerful way they had to mediate between God and man. Now, yes, there were other ways they could teach God's word. So God gave the word, they teach it to the man. But the other way is really only through prayer. The only way they can represent man to God was through prayer and maybe through sacrifice, but all of these duties that God gives to them. And one of the most powerful is this idea of prayer. Prayer is the essential way that the priests were going to communicate with God, okay? The beautiful, sweet smell of that burning incense would be this constant reminder to all of them that this God was listening and that he loves to hear their prayers. And I think that's probably the direct connection to the smell of that incense. It was that reminder that God is always listening. Remember, even from our passage, what does it say? But he was supposed to do that in the morning and at night. So this incense is burning all day and it burns all night long. God always stands ready to hear our prayers. And what a sweet incense it is to God when he hears them. Although this piece of furniture was smaller than all the rest of the furnishings, you can see that the altar was very similar in its design to something else that we've already seen. Um, We were told that it's made of gold, right? We're told that it has four horns. I think I have a picture of it on there if you want to pull that up. Um, It's a little taller than some of the others, but smaller in stature. You see there, it's got the four horns around it. Almost, it's got those smaller little horns that uh, some people say that it associates with this idea of a crown. So it has like a crown around the top of it, but much smaller in the sense of its squareness, okay? Now, let's look at verse 6. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. So again, there's this idea of meeting directly connected with this idea of the altar of incense. It's interesting language that we find here in this verse. It's placed in the holy place But notice in the language of this verse, even though the altar of incense is in the holy place, it's directly associated with the things that are in the holy of holies. It doesn't say anything about the table of showbread. It doesn't say anything about the lampstand. It says, put it in front of this veil, right in front the ark, the mercy seat, where my presence is. So this altar of incense seems to be somehow this connection between the holy place and the holy of holies. It's kind of like that transition piece that brings us from one place to the other. When they were standing at this altar, they were standing before the very presence of God. Now, albeit the presence of God was on the other side of that veil, but this was as close as any of them were ever going to get besides the high priest and him only once a year on the Day of Atonement at God's invitation. This was as close as anyone was going to get to the very presence of the glory of God. And the work and the service that they did there, 
I think, carry this very weighty significance as well. Look at the next verse in verse 7. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering or you shall not pour a drink offering on it. So there we have that indication that as Aaron and the priest go in to maintain the oil in the lamps, the golden lampstand, directly connected to that, they are supposed to also maintain the altar of incense. So we know that this was a daily ritual. First thing in the morning, I guess they had like shifts as we do at work, you know, and the new shift comes in. The first thing the morning shift does is they make sure that the oil is replenished in the lamp and they make sure that there is incense, the prescribed incense in the altar of incense. When the night shift comes in and the ones are leaving and the ones that are coming in, they're going to stay overnight. The first thing they do is make sure the oil is in all the lamps and make sure that there's incense on the altar of incense. Okay. So a couple of things are clear from these verses that that uh, directly relate to this responsibility of overseeing this process. This was Aaron's and, and Aaron's sons, the priests. I mean, it seems right here that it's directly Aaron's responsibility, but what we know from the book of Leviticus and others is that the priest did this as well. So Aaron is a representative, a figurehead, if you will, of the whole priesthood. All of the priests would come in and it was all of their responsibilities, whoever shift it was, to make sure these things were done. He looks after this on a daily basis. He tended to it morning and evening. And it was only for a specific purpose. Notice that last verse there, verse 9, talks about there were no offerings that were to be given on this altar. Now, why would you even say that? Well, because number one, it is called an altar. And remember, directly connected to that, every altar that we really see in all of Scripture has sacrifices that are put on it. But God is separating this one out. He's saying, this one's not for sacrifice. This one's only for incense. Don't come in here with a drink offering. Don't come in here with a burnt offering. Don't come in here with any kind of offering. Why? Here's why. I think it's related directly to the idea of what this represents. Now... Before we get into that, I want to just point out one thing. The recipe for this incense was unique, intended only for the purpose of, of burning here in the holy place. If you go down a little further in this chapter, look down in verse 38. You see that very specifically spelled out for you. So we'll get to that next week. But verse 38 says it again, reiterates there's a very specific recipe that is to be used for the altar of incense that is to be burnt in this place. Now, no one was allowed to make this recipe for any other reason, for any other purpose, except for this. It was holy to the Lord. And when the priests come in and they smelled this fragrance, they knew exactly where they were and they knew exactly what they were doing. So what is the purpose of this altar? Why does God tell them don't offer any other kind of offerings here at this, offer, uh, uh, this altar? Well, let me start by saying this. Number one, 
to discover the purpose of the altar of incense, you have to kind of look at what people have thought through the ages. And, and there's two things that come up to the forefront. One I've already mentioned is that it represents prayer. Others say, no, I don't know that it necessarily, necessarily represents prayer. What the purpose of this altar of incense is, is to drive out the stench of the offerings that are just outside of this place. Now, that's a good point, because I want you to think about this for a moment, because when we think of meat being cooked on a grill, that's not necessarily a bad experience for us, right? I mean, when you smell meat cooking on the grill, you're like, that smells good. But remember, this was not meat being cooked on a grill all the time. This was sometimes a burnt offering, which means the entire thing burnt up on there. Now, there's one thing that's just a tragedy is a burnt steak, right? I mean, when you start smelling that thing and it's gone way overboard, it stinks. It smells bad. It's a bad smell. Not only that, you also have to remember that the animals came in alive and they cut them and they drained their blood and then they would begin to field dress them right there next to the altar. So you also have that smell of the entrails. You have the smell of all of the organs that are being brought out and washed. You have the smell of all that blood from all of the sacrifices of that day that's just pooled around these tables. So we're not talking about just the cooking of meat. We're talking about all of that and all of that would create a stench. Because you think about it, after every sacrifice, they don't clean up that blood in the morning and, and then come in with a new one. It all just continues to pile up and it's been sitting there in the hot sun all day long. So there is a stench that is associated with what's happening around the uh, altar of the, the brazen altar, okay, or the altar of sacrifice. So a lot of people say that this was to push that away and this would have had such a strong aroma that it would have filled that tent. The smoke and the aroma would have filled that tent to the point that they would no longer smell the stench on the outside. And my thought as I was really preparing this was, why can't it be both of those things? Why can't it be both to remove the smell of the stench of sacrifice and be a picture of prayer? Although there is nothing in scripture that tells us exactly what the purpose of this altar is for and the incense that's burned upon it, I think there are several passages that give us a clearer understanding of how this was used for them. Let me go and show you some of them right now. Psalm 141, this is a Psalm of David. This is David speaking. Look at the first two verses. O oh Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call to you. What is that? That's, that's prayer. Let my prayer be counted as, what's the next word? Incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the what? Evening sacrifice. So you see how that's directly related to our passage? He's supposed to do it in the morning and in the evening. He talks about it as incense and he directly connects it to this idea of prayer. So that's one passage. But let me take you to the New Testament and show you another passage. Y'all remember John the Baptist, right? And do you remember the very unique um, circumstances surrounding the birth of John the Baptist? specifically the announcement of his birth. Remember, it was his mom and dad who had been praying and his mom had not been able to have any children. And so God appears to her and says, you're going to have a child. He speaks this to Zechariah, his father. Look at what it says in Luke chapter one, verse eight. Now, while he, talking about Zechariah, was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty. So where is he? Before God. 
If he's before God, what is the direct connection to our passages in Exodus where he's standing? The only one that says that he's before God is either the Ark of the Covenant or the only other piece that says that is the altar of incense. So we have to assume that's where he's standing. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and do what? So we know that's where he was. He was standing there at the altar of incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of so here we have another one, this idea of people praying around this hour of incense, the hour that this incense was added to the altar. Look at verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So there he is, he comes in, all the people are praying, he's been elected to go in there, and this is where he is before the Lord. Zechariah apparently had been praying at this very spot. Look how it continues in verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your what? Prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Apparently, Zechariah had been coming into this place as he was serving as priest before the Lord, and he had been offering this prayer to God, saying, God, please give me a son. And it was at this very place that God answers his prayer and tells him, I am going to grant the request that you have made. So again, we see a picture of the altar of incense directly connected to this idea of prayer. But I got one other passage I want to show you, and this comes from Revelation. The apostle John writes in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of what? Which are the prayers of the saints. So here's this direct connection to the idea of incense being related to the prayers of the saints. We have the picture in Luke where a priest is literally before the altar of incense and has been praying a prayer and God through an angel tells him his prayer is going to be answered. And then we have the passage of David making this this plea before the Lord to say, hear my prayers just as you receive that incense from the evening sacrifice. What a beautiful picture to understand exactly what this altar represents. But again, I want to show you why I think this altar is so important and why God in verse nine says, don't make any other sacrifices on this altar, okay? I believe it's because there is a connection between the two altars. This is the importance of verse 10. Look at verse 10. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations it is most holy to the Lord. Now, what's he talking about there? What is that once a year that he is going to make atonement? We know what that is. That's the day of atonement, okay? That's that, that thing that we've studied from the seven feasts, right? It's the one where the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies. It's the only time he ever goes in there. It's the only time he ever utters the holy name of God. And he goes in there with a sacrifice. He sprinkles blood on the mercy seat. But did you know directly connected with that same sequence is that same blood that is put on the mercy seat. When he comes out, he is to apply that to the horns of the altar of incense, did you know that? He would come out and he would take it. It says seven times he shall put the blood on the horns 
of the altar of incense. So I want you to see a picture here. Where does the sacrifice begin? It begins at the altar of sacrifice on the outside. Then the blood is taken in, applied to the altar of incense, and applied to the mercy seat. So there's this one act that connects these three things. Now, if you also see it in a picture of a diagram of the tabernacle, you have them all in a straight line with each other. Okay, so you have the other two that are on the side, but these go straight through. You have the altar of incense, the, I mean, I'm sorry, the altar of sacrifice, the altar of incense, and the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies. So it's this direct line from outside to inside to the actual Holy of Holies. Okay? Not only that, one thing I want you to see, what was the brazen altar? Do you remember what it looks like? Go ahead and show the next picture. Here's a picture of the brazen altar. This is the altar of sacrifice. Now, if you remember, if we go back and talk about exactly what it looked like, this is a picture of it. Now, notice what it has on four corners. What does it have? Those horns, okay? Now, the altar, the brazen altar was for sacrifice. This was a place where sins were mitigated, okay? This was a place where God, by prescribed sacrifices, a man could be forgiven of his sins because a substitute took his place. So there is a substitute sacrifice. Something else died instead of the man because his sins had to be forgiven, and the only way they could be forgiven was the shedding of blood. So that's where this took place that allowed for a substitute sacrifice to take the place of the one who had committed the sins, okay? Now, let me show you the altar of incense, okay? Notice how it looks exactly the same, just the different dimensions as far as its height and how big it is. This one's square, the other one is rectangular, but notice other than that, they look exactly the same. The only difference is the altar of uh, the, the brazen altar is bronze, and the altar of incense is gold. Remember, everything on the outside of the tabernacle is made of bronze. Everything inside the tabernacle is made of gold. So there seems to be this connection here. There's a similarity in the structure in these horns, and they're both called altars. They're the only ones that are called altars in everything that God prescribed. So what is the picture here? Well, the first one is an altar of sacrifice. We talked about that. The second one is an altar of prayer. It's an altar of intercession. It's an altar of a sweet aroma. The first one causes a stench. The second one causes a pleasant fragrance to fill the room. The first one is about death. The second one seems to be more about life because it's before the very presence of God. We even see with Zechariah, I'm going to give you a son. There's this picture of answered prayer and life that's connected with this one. See, I think that the picture here is that these two are directly connected to each other. What happens on the outside makes way for what happens on the inside. Without the sacrifice, there is no opportunity of prayer. Without the substitute, there is no intercession. Prayer happens because a sacrifice has taken place. Do you see this? Intercession can happen because someone took your place and made you right, made you holy, made you righteous before God. That's what allows for the prayers to be offered. So when Jesus is at the right hand of the Father ever interceding for us, the only way that can happen 
is a cross where our sins were forgiven and we were atoned for and a substitute was killed in our place. Do you see that picture there? So again, remember at the very beginning, we are told that everything in the tabernacle is a shadow of things to come. So I think that what we have here is a picture of the cross and the resurrection leading to the intercession of Christ, that he ever is before the Father interceding on our behalf, that he's praying for us, becoming the intermediary for us, representing us before God. He knows more what we need than we do. And so he's ever interceding for us. I love how one commentator put it. He says, this demonstrated the basis for access to God through prayer was the blood that made atonement for sin. You see that? This author, again, makes that same connection that what makes it possible for the intercession in prayer is the blood from the sacrifice on the outside. And what this reminds us of, again, when we talk about the intercession and we talk about the, uh, the sacrifice and we talk about the role of the priest and how they're serving before the Lord, what we're talking about here is if these are a foreshadowing of things to come, then Jesus is a better high priest, as the book of Hebrews tells us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. How? Through him, since he always lives to make what? Intercession for them. So so right here, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he is the intermediary. He is the intercessor. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. In other words, not into the tabernacle, not into the holy of holies, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God. But why does he appear in the presence of God? On our behalf. He is our intercessor. He is our intermediary. He is the one who goes to God on our behalf. Think about that picture again. As I said, we were reading that passage from, uh, from, from the, uh, Luke chapter 1 where Zechariah was going in. And it said all the people on the outside were out there praying. Think about this for a moment. The people never saw this. The people never went into the altar of incense and offered any kind of incense on there. They never saw this. They never went into the Only the priests would do that. But they all stood on the outside praying. They all stood there hoping their prayers could be heard by God, and and especially that their prayers could be answered by God. And yet, what is so transformational about the gospel is the gospel says that Jesus has provided such a way that he doesn't just go in on our behalf, but he invites us to come in through him. So not only is he the intermediary in the sense that he represents us before God, he becomes the door to where we as priests walk into the very presence of God. The the book of Hebrews talks about this idea of boldly approaching the throne of God. Now the throne of God is directly related to the mercy seat in the tabernacle. Because of what Jesus accomplished, we can boldly approach the throne of God. Let me ask you this question right here, and this really comes down to the application of this. What is your prayer life like right now? 
What's it like? What are your prayers filled with? How often do you pray? How long do you pray? Or maybe a better question is, how long is it before you're distracted when you're praying? We live in a very distracted environment, don't we? I mean, prayer is to the Christian what air is to the lungs. Would you agree with me on that? I mean, I'm talking biblically speaking, not just my, my opinion or my point of view. I'm saying that if you open up the gospel and you begin to talk about what it, what it is for us to accomplish and be everything that God's created us to be, the only way we come to understand that is through prayer. So prayer is to the Christian what air is to the lungs. Essential. How's your prayer life? What's it like? I often find a direct correlation between my mood or the perspective that I have on current situations and my prayer life. Can I get an amen? I mean, it happens like that over and over again. I mean, you find yourself getting frustrated with someone or you find yourself in this great sense of dread and fear. The one thing I find is the reason I get there is because I haven't been spending time in prayer. And I'm thankful for those experiences because a lot of times those are what drive me back to prayer because I realize, where is this coming from? This is coming from me not trusting God. And why am I not trusting God? Because I haven't been spending time in his presence. I haven't been going before him. Because when I go before him, I learn more about him, his character. I learn how he can be trusted. I remember that his ways aren't my ways. But I also remember that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with me. He never will leave me. He will never forsake me. And all of these memories associated in my mind with these verses that I've learned through the years become the strength for me to continue walking what God intended for me to walk, for me to continue to understand and discover what it was I was created for and what that purpose is and how that purpose is to be lived out on a day-to-day basis. Prayer is not about getting God on your agenda. It's about you getting on God's agenda. Okay? So what I mean by that is you don't, prayer is not going to God and saying, God, I came up with this great idea. You've probably never heard this before, but I'm going to share it with you. Okay? Or maybe you have, but listen, i got a new, new twist on it. What I need to do is win the lottery. Okay? Now, if I do that, I've got this great idea. I'm telling you, it's, it's awesome. I am going to build a camp for kids who don't have parents of their own, that they can be shepherded by other people. Now, I might buy a couple cars over here, but, but, um, but the majority of what I'm going to do, do you see what I'm saying? Like Sometimes we use prayer in our conversation with God really more to try and sales pitch God on our newest idea of how we've got this all figured out, and if he would just come along and use his power along with our great wisdom, that this would be a great situation. That's not the purpose of prayer. Prayer is not about getting God on your agenda. Prayer is about you getting on God's agenda. And and, and the difference in that prayer might look like this. It still starts with honesty. God, you know what I've been thinking about all week long is there's a $1 billion lottery out there. And you know my heart is evil. And I sit there and think, man, I'd love to have that $1 billion And you know what, God? I really think that if I had it, I would probably do a lot of good things. But I don't know half of what you know. 
And God, a billion dollars to you is a drop in the bucket to what's yours. Lord, let my heart be pulled away from the things of this world and more focused on the things that last forever. Lord, you do what you want to do with me. If you want to bless, you can bless. And if you want to take away, Lord, you take away. Because I trust you with every fabric of my being. Money's not going to make me happy. Material possessions aren't going to make me happy. Even a relationship in this world is ultimately not going to make me happy if I'm not connected with you. Lord, I want to know you. And I want to know what you have for me today and from this day forward. God, draw me in closer to you and reveal to me what your will is for my life. Do you see that? It's almost like the same prayer. It's just a different attitude. One of them starts off with this idea that, hey, I got this figured out. The other one starts with, hey, I've got this bad thing that happens inside of me. You know, God wants you to be honest. He doesn't want you to pretend like, you know, you're perfect and you don't ever struggle with these things. He wants you to be honest. He can handle it. He already knows what you're thinking. He already knows what's deep down inside. So it begins with this idea of a conversation. I'm reminded of what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. This is a very familiar verse. Let's all read it together. Pray without ceasing. Now, what is Paul talking about there? Now, again, we talk about prayer. <laughs> I think we, we, we churchize this a lot, right? Because whenever we pray, we close our eyes and we bow our head. To the point that if you're ever like peeping, and you see somebody who doesn't have their eyes closed, you assume they're not praying. Because if they were praying, their eyes would be closed, and they would be more reverent with their head bowed. But you know, there's nowhere in Scripture that ever says to close your eyes when you pray. There's nowhere in Scripture that it commands you that the only posture of prayer is the bowing of the head. There are pictures in Scripture where people are praying on their knees. There are pictures in Scripture where people are praying with their hands extended. Prayer is not as much about the position of your body as it is the position of your heart. Is it bowed before the Lord? That's more, 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 more important than the position of your body. Some people are more distracted when they close their eyes than they are with their eyes open. I'm one of them. Why? Because my mind is way more dangerous than what's out here. So I close my eyes and I begin to think about what I got to do the rest of the day, how much of that yard needs to be mowed and what I got to do next. And boy, I would really love to have this. And all of a sudden, I'm not even paying attention anymore. Sometimes I will, most of the time, actually, I'll tell you, I leave my eyes open in prayer and I watch the person praying. The reason is if I watch them, I'm paying attention to what they're saying, just like I do in a conversation. So it's not irreverent, it's me being intentional about really listening to what's being prayed and seeing if my heart is in agreement with that as well so that I can say amen to it. Praying without ceasing. <clears throat> I also think, again, I don't know for sure that Paul had this in mind, but what if he had the idea of the priest morning and night adding incense to the altar? That's praying without ceasing. And so really it's more of this idea of understanding that God is always ready. He always stands ready to hear our prayers. He always stands ready to listen to our confessions, to our wants, our desires, our fears. And he wants to speak into our life as well. Praying without ceasing 
That is just being in this attitude of awareness of God's presence around us all the time. Now, before we leave today, I want to give you five practical ways to improve your prayer life. I've been told before that I don't give enough practicality sometimes. So here it is. I'm giving you five practical ways that you can improve your prayer life from this day forward if you implement them, okay? Now, maybe you have a stellar prayer life. Maybe everything is awesome. That's great. These are probably things you're already doing. But for those of us who might be struggling through this, here are five ways. Listen to this. Number one, make prayer a priority. In other words, schedule time for prayer every single day. You schedule lunches. You schedule breakfast. Why not take out that calendar and just say, I'm going to spend 15 minutes praying every single day. I'm going to make it a habit. Because if you start doing that, what happens is a habit begins to be created there in, in that realm of your mind and your space. You've got to make it a priority. The world's not going to make it a priority for you. Second thing is this, be consistent. I would say this, try to pray at the same time every day until that prayer becomes a habit. Now, do you have to do that the rest of your life? No, I'm talking about if you're struggling to be consistent in your prayer, then let's do this. Let's do it every day at the same exact time. What happens is you begin to build this into your life where you're like, okay, I've got this. I know what I do every day. And then what happens is from there, it'll blossom into other times of the day, okay? Number three, set aside distractions. Don't pray while you're driving. Or at least what I'm saying is don't make that your scheduled time to pray. Why? Because there's so many distractions. And the last thing you want to do is be praying to a holy God and curse out the person who's in front of you who just cut you off in traffic. Not the best place to focus on who God is and the holiness of God, okay? So in other words, don't just try and fit it into your busy day by saying, well, I can do this and pray at the same time. Now, can you do that? Yes, God's always listening. But what I'm saying is make it a priority of importance in your life. In other words, don't just add it to something else you're already doing, but set aside a little bit of time and make that a priority where it's just you and God. Number four, talk to God and listen to God. The guilty part that we play oftentimes in our prayer life is this. We begin praying and we're like, God, I'm really struggling with this and my relationship over here is really suffering and God, I just pray for this neighbor over here who doesn't know you. I pray you give me an opportunity to share the gospel with them and Lord, thank you for our church and you know we have this building program going on. Lord, I just pray that you take care of all that and move upon all the rich people to give all their money to the church so we can pay for that building. In Jesus' name, pray, amen. And then we go about our day and we forget. Maybe God's sitting there going, eat, but, ooh, deep. And he doesn't get a word in edgewise because we never give him a moment to. So remember that prayer is just as much about hearing from God as it is about speaking to God. Make sure you're incorporating both of those into it. And the last one is this. And this is the most simple and yet the most profound. Be patient. Be patient. Don't expect immediate results from prayer. Trust that God is listening and he's going to answer in his time. You know, the worst thing you can do is pray a prayer and then not see it come to fruition in the next day and go, well, God must have not heard my prayer. God refuses to answer my prayer. No, God may have already answered your prayer. You just don't know how answered it yet. What prayer is about is not seeing results. It's about learning to trust God. There are many prayers that God didn't answer that I'm so glad that he did not answer. 
And I'm thankful for those. And in that, I've learned that prayer is not about me writing something down and then seeing if God answers the way I want him to. Prayer is more about me expressing my heart to God and then trusting him with how he wants to answer that prayer. Ultimately, we must remember that prayer is a privilege extended to us by God through Christ. The cross is what afforded us the ability to boldly approach the throne of God. And so I think it's very fitting today that we would separate, uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper as we leave today. So right now, um, whatever you need to do to remove distractions, if that's for you closing your eyes, if that's for you focusing up on the screen and looking at the picture of the elements there and the idea of communion and this idea of remembrance, let's remember <clears throat> that Jesus, as he is the great high priest who stands before God and, and, and intercesses for us, he was also the one who became the intercessor on the first altar. He became the sacrifice. He shed the blood. So much so that on the night that he shared the Passover meal with his disciples, he raised the glass and raised the bread from the afikoman, and he said the prayers and the blessings that went along with those things, and he brought significance to them. Just as we've brought significance to every element in the tabernacle, so Jesus brought elements to the Passover meal. And he said, this bread, this is a picture of my body, and it's about to be broken for you because I'm going to become the substitute. This cup is, be, is a picture of my blood, which is poured out for you. It's about to be poured out for you so that you can be forgiven because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. I want you to take this, and as often as you do this, I want you to remember. I want you to remember that I was willing to become the sacrifice so that I could become your intermediary in prayer. I wanted to become the sacrifice so that you could be forgiven, so that I could represent you before the Father and even open the door so that you could boldly approach the throne of God through me. As we celebrate today, let's remember one thing that's very important. This table is only for those who are already Christians already followers of Jesus. You've already made that commitment. You followed through. There's nothing you're holding back from him. Okay. There's no area of disobedience in your life that you're holding back and unrepentant of. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean you haven't made a mistake. Doesn't mean you made a, didn't make a mistake this morning. What it means is those mistakes are not something you're holding on to and you're unrepentant on them. If that's you, then you need to spend some time in prayer before you come up to the table and release those things to the Lord. But after you've thought and you've prayed this prayer, Holy Spirit, examine me. If there's any offensive way in me, show me those things. And if he shows you something, you confess it. And if he doesn't show you anything, then you praise God that in this moment that you are right before him. And then you go and you take and you remember and you praise God. Amen. God, thank you for a beautiful picture of who you are. I pray that as we understand the power of prayer, that it would become a significant part of our life. But we realize that prayer would not even be possible without the sacrifice that you made for us on the cross, without the empty tomb, you defeating death, hell, and the grave. So God, in this moment, we pray that you would make these things, these symbols, very real to us, powerful in the way that we understand them and apply them to our own lives. Lord, we receive these things as you have commanded us to do, and we want to receive them with the right heart, a repentant heart, a heart that's been made whole by you. Thank you for being 
such a good father that opens the way for us, who paid the penalty of sin for us. May we take seriously this incredible gift of prayer that you've given to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.